This is a moment in wine and hip hop, brought to you by Crew Love, blending wine and hip hop at the highest level. Wine and hip hop, wine and music. Tell me up, bro. Check this out. Oh yeah, you'll be the life of the party. Wine and hip hop really mirrors the the conversations that we have in my office about wine and music. Yeah, what's good, Josh? Your man, Jermaine Showtime Stone, a.k.a. The Wolf of Wine, a.k.a. The Zara Vibes, a.k.a. Young Thanos. So I'm just out here collecting Infinity Stones. More fire upon your head top. Today, I'm sitting down with a legend, Mr. Jay Boberg. Now, Jay started as a music executive since the late 70s, booking people like Bob Marley, Dude found R.E.M., signed The Roots, signed Common. You know, he's had a very influential career in music. And now he's linked up with his longtime friend, Jean-Nicolas Mayo, winemaker for Mayo Camerze, to create their own winery, Nicholas J., based in Oregon. The thing I like about wine and hip-hop is how relatable it makes us with one another. And that's something that really shined through on this episode. Hearing about Jay's hustle, passion for wine, passion for music. It was a fire episode. But how does someone go from producing some of the most influential music of my generation to now producing wine with one of the most influential winemakers in our time? So this was a really dope episode. I was honored to have Jay on. I'm to call him a friend. I think y'all are going to pick up a lot of jewels on this one. So pay attention and just go ahead and pick up your phone right now. Subscribe to the show, rate and comment. Without further ado, me, Jay Boberg of Nicholas J. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. This really excited to be here. I mean, one, it's an honor to have you on the show. Well, you thank know, you. It's um, an honor to be here. I feel like your your resume in music is almost unreal. <laughs> like you, I mean, all the way back to like, did you help book like Bob Marley back I in did. the day? Like, I, I mean, the levels you discovered REM. <laughs> like, you know, this this is a hip hop show, but I mean, damn, that is pretty pretty impressive. You know, um, so thank you for joining me. My pleasure. And. Um, a bunch of people in the music business know you. A bunch of people in the wine industry know you. Now, I'd like my, my hip-hop crowd to really get to know you. you okay. know? So I ask a lot of my guests, if you could choose any rapper that you were most similar with, what rapper would you say you identify with? I would say um, it was an artist that uh, we signed, I signed uh, with Wendy at uh, MCA called Common. Who you know very well. Growing up, she got to know her very well in a world where self-hate is overt. Her stepfather thought he was Ike, so her mother he strikes. She got to like like-minded niggas who like crimes and figures doing white lines and liquor. See hard times and kicked her in the ass that used to be thicker. Life is fast, some choose to be quicker. And um, he is, uh, I suppose, the way he goes about what he does, he's incredibly authentic which I think I am, at least I certainly operate that way. He does things based on passion. Uh, he does things that are thoughtful 
and not necessarily you know rash or whatever and um he tries to make a difference public service announcement for the culture is going down it's your man wolf of wine we taking over syndicated barn movie theater in bushwick brooklyn november 12th and 13th for the world's first wine and hip-hop festival we bringing together the biggest and brightest in wine and hip-hop we got all your favorite wine producers you know if you like our visual and event series tasting notes from the streets guess what we got the season and finale for you that means we're gonna have every pairing featured in our episodes past present and future and if you've been following on the gram you know we just shot a couple joints out there in bordeaux and burgundy so you're gonna want to pull up panel discussions of fire we got the respect the producer panel we bringing on wine producers and hip-hop producers we got the new york state of wine tasting where you can explore the terroir of music in new york state as well as the terroir of new york state wines come on man ain't nobody doing it like this november 12th 13th bushwick brooklyn get your tickets today wineandhiphopfestival.com one and i i think that common would be the rapper. I mean, I could go with my my uh, uh, good friend uh, Amir uh, Questlove, but uh, he he uh, is such a big star in his own right. I can't possibly compare myself <laughs> to him at this point. The man is 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 talented in ways that we most of us can't even begin to dream about. Yeah, but, summer uh, of Soul. What a movie, right? Oof. What it, can this guy of soul not actually change my life? Like, I, had, I brought people over to the house and had movie night, projector night, so people could watch that movie. I didn't even know it existed. And, like, the way that he put the footage together, the fact that he could find that footage and put it together so well was amazing. Yeah, he's just an immense. The whole band. I mean, it's yeah. not just it's not yeah, just yeah. it's not just a mirror, but um, the whole band is immensely talented. When we did that record, uh, things fall apart. There was a whole process of doing the artwork for that, and I don't know if you remember that album cover, yeah, but it's got like they like we, run. It's like a street. Well, we that's the one that's the one that we did uh, that was on most of the CDs, and and we did vinyl, of course, for mm. that for that as well. But we actually there's five covers. And they're all from very, very important uh, 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 civil disobedience, you know, uh, uh, fucked up things that happened in the world. And, and the band, uh, with Amir driving that, but all of them selected these five different covers. And so each of them represents a moment, a really important moment in history and ties in with the book. Of course, you know the book, Things yeah. Fall Apart. Um, it's, it's just... These guys, everything that they did was really, really thoughtful from that standpoint. That and must be so interesting for you to, to see so many legendary artists at the beginning of their career to now, I mean, these guys with the band at the Tonight Show. Know. You know? Imagine that. Who would have ever thought? Like, first of all, you got Black Thought, who's like one of the best rappers to ever breathe on a mic in the band of the Tonight Show. Y'all some jolly good Hollywood squares. I'm like, ahem, approach the author with your offering. I spore rappers rotten like my only offspring. Being his excellency gets to be exhausting. You in the residency, you're the one they call. King Dada, Alibaba, the talent to Mr. Trotter. Inside of my right palm, the mark of the stick. Mata, big popper, wig chopper. Emperor Jaffe, Jaffa, motherfucker. I'm stronger than the coffee out in copper. All y'all make his vagina hot. Remind me of Akata Pop. I step in the booth, I'm a bull inside a china shop. What is it like for you to now sit back and see how their careers played out? Not just the roots, but just all of the artists that you've worked with to, to go Yeah, I think, 
you know, the thing is, is that nobody knows that they're legends right. when you're starting, right? And, and so it's really interesting. Um, obviously, to be an artist and to, to put yourself out there like that, you have to have self-confidence. You have to have an ego. There are some who actually blend that self-confidence also with a drive to succeed, so they're willing to do the work. Those are much easier yeah. to, be, to partner with. And, I always, when, I, when we had IRS Records, which was the label that I started with Miles Copeland at the beginning, um, when I came out of UCLA, you were mentioning where we booked Bob Marley and all that stuff. Um, we, we signed bands that were, were, at the time, thought of as being odd, like the Buzzcocks and Danny Elfman and Oingo Boingo and R.E.M. and the Go-Go's. It was an all-girl yeah. band, right? And in the English beat, I don't know if you remember the beat, Mirror in the Bathroom and all that stuff. These were bands that were not in the mainstream. And so their work ethic, and not only were they doing something completely creative, but they were willing to drive around the country in a van, towing a bunch of equipment, setting up their own equipment every night. I mean, the drive that they had to have to do it. So I always found it, it, that my job was to be their partner and to be their advocate and to try to not change what they were doing, but to try to help them achieve more success with them being authentically who they were. Mm. And later on in my career, when I was running MCA Universal, I had the enormous pleasure of working with, with people like Mary J. Blige, who was already, she'd already done two albums with Puffy and with Andre Harrell at that time, and there was no doubt no doubting her stature, but the stature was really only in one segment of the market. She had not a huge audience overseas and had not really crossed over mainstream-wise on those first two records. And so there it was a matter of how do you try to, how did I try to work with Mary and the people around her in order to make albums that you'd be able to sp spread that audience. Mm -hmm. and, and, really, and we did. I mean, we ended up selling seven or eight million albums we she sold three million overseas where she had never sold records overseas and trying to get the artists to trust that you are actually have their interests in mind right. is extremely tough in the music business because of the fact that there's a lot of people that take advantage of that trust and burn the artists and then the artists don't trust anybody and that was what I was really up against because I actually really cared yeah. I mean, about what I was doing and, and doing for them. And the art is so personal, you know, and there's a lot of the, the art involves business decisions and picking singles and, you know, will this work in this market? And as you mentioned, artists really have to trust their team and the people that are working around them to to uh to be successful sometimes you got to go with an idea that you don't like 100 percent as an artist i i end up in that spot a lot you know yeah. working in what i do but i'm sure you, as you mentioned you have to trust who you're working around so when i think about that i'm like you know a lot of people don't really know um what someone that runs a label does uh and you've worked with so many successful people um what so even like shaggy right artists sure. like shaggy Sold 10 million records. <laughs> 20, 24 million records. Oh like, that was the biggest album of the year that year. I think it was 1999 or yeah. 2001 or something like that. Yeah. It wasn't me. But she caught me on the counter. It wasn't me. Saw me banging on the sofa. It wasn't me. I even had her in the shower. It wasn't me. She even caught me on camera. It wasn't me. She saw the marks on my shoulder. It wasn't me. Heard the words that I told her. It wasn't me. Heard the screams getting loud. 
wasn't me. She said until it was over. Yo, everybody was saying that it wasn't me. So, you know, what what is your involvement in working with artists? You know, as you mentioned, Mary was one way. How do you work with her directly to help um, to help them grow? Well, you, I think people that run that at least at that level are running record companies, it sort of depends on the individual. Some people are more business oriented and then they hire people to deal with the music. Um, other people like myself are much more involved with the music. I, I, I always, you know, the great thing about starting your own uh, label and being an entrepreneur, and you are certainly doing that right now, right. is it's, it's, you deal with all the creative issues, but you also deal with paying the bills and figuring out the staffing and, you know, running the business. Yeah. And people forget that part. They only yeah. see the creative part, right? So I had to learn uh, at IRS Records to do both of those. But when I got to MCA and had a bigger organization, I tended to focus on working with the artists on the musical side of things. I grew up a musician. I started out playing classical guitar when I was seven. I studied really seriously, not because my parents made me, but I actually really liked it. And then I saw the Who play the Quadrophenia. I'm showing how old I am, but uh, the Who played the Quadrophenia tour, and I went and saw them when I was 15. All of a sudden, no longer interested in playing classical guitar, <laughs> wanted to play electric guitar and em emulate Pete Townsend. But my point is, is that I came from a musical way of thinking of things. So, you know, going back to the roots, we had a lot of debate on um, You Got Me, the song You Got Me, um, where about who should be singing that song, the hook. And I pushed real hard with the band to have Erica Badu sing it. And they are their, their, their sister living in their town, Jill Scott, had done the demo. And I'm not saying anything. I love Jill Scott and love her records, but I really felt that for them, for them to achieve what we need, we're trying to achieve and have a song that actually crossed over to mainstream radio to have Erica's star thing. So we went round and round and round, and they trusted me ultimately, and and we went with Erica Badu, and thank God we delivered, that and it, and yeah. it was a big hit record that for them. actually put something really nice about that in the in his book where he talked about the fact that that they act, you know you were saying sometimes you have to go with something you don't totally trust yeah and that's exactly what he said in the book and and thank god it worked out that's so funny man well and now um you're in the wine business i am you know so and this is something you don't have to do this you know so what and, and the wine business is not an easy business to be in, you know. No, especially it, trying to make money out of it. Exactly. It's so fickle. Like the weather changed. Like there's political changes. All these things that play into, you know, uh, wine being successful. So what is, what is your passion that, that's driving you at this point to make this happen? Well, passion's the key word. Um, when I 
was in college, I discovered wine, my roommate had worked for a wine distributor, I got turned on to wine and sort of made a premature exit from Jack Daniels and beer that we were all drinking <laughs> in, in college. And I started going up to Santa Barbara and seeing the Santa Barbara wine region. Jim Clendenin was making wine at uh, Zaca Mesa before he started Obon Clement. Ken Brown was making the wines at Sanford. There was a lot, of, a lot going on in that early stages of the Santa Barbara area. And then I met a guy named Kermit Lynch, who is, a, as you know, one of the legendary importers. Oh, yeah. And he effectively was an A&R guy for wine yeah. in the way that I was an A&R guy See, now guy you're talking like me. Music. I, I'm I mean, usually the one that's making these comparisons all the time. <laughs> totally. So for everybody that don't know A&Rs, you know, they're like the curators almost. Right. They're the people they... are supposed to be finding what's coming next. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Kermit did that successfully, right? I mean, he had Chave, he had Jaye, he had Mayo Camise, he had Cocherie, he had, I mean, you can just go to through. It's all new, all old world, everything from Europe, nothing domestic. And so he taught me a lot and I and discovered wine. So me going into wine sort of later in life is my second act, if you will. I was always known as the music guy that was into wine. I mean, in the music industry, I would have, you know, like if we were doing a big radio convention, I would, uh, instead of just doing some crazy dinner or whatever and trying to pimp people out on our music, I would bring in a winemaker, do a wine dinner, get everybody excited about learning about the wine and the winemaker, and guess what? They would then go play our records just because yeah. they had such a great time. I mean, it actually worked That's out so well. Dope. So this idea of going into wine um, was something that came from a genuine passion. Uh, I, other than my kids and music, which I still you know, listen to music 24 hours a day, um, wine is my other passion. I'm not into cars, I'm not, I mean, everybody has their stuff, yeah. right? And wine and music are my things. And so I consider myself to be really, really lucky, even though I'm working my ass off doing this, in the sense that if you're spending your life chasing uh, something that you truly are passionate about, where your work is your passion, your, your avocation becomes your vocation, then That's you're, you're y'all tweet that. That's a tweet moment. Write it down and tweet it. <laughs> then you're you're a lucky man, right? Or lucky yeah. gal. I mean, wow. if that if that's what you're able to do. So, starting a company from scratch is, as you know, is not the easiest thing in the world. Um, and doing it in the wine business, it's it's a tough business to, to make money. But um, look, we're eight years in at Nicholas J. Um, we've had eight vintages. We're about to start our ninth. We actually got cash flow positive last year. I mean, not by much. I mean, <laughs> but it happened. You know, I mean, but it happened. I mean, you still you still have to can't spend that much at Costco. But but the bottom line is is that we're making it and we're building the brand and people are starting to really understand the level of quality that we're shooting for. That it's not. You know, it's not quantity. We're not trying to be in grocery stores. We're trying. We we don't make enough wine already. We're right. selling out, but we're making wines that people are then telling their friends about, and we're creating that passion where that sense of discovery. People are discovering our wine, and then they're meeting up with friends for dinner or going over to their house, and they're bringing a bottle of our wine and saying, "You gotta check this out." And that's exactly what happened in music, right? Yeah, yeah. With a band, <laughs> exactly. with a band that you I would sign, you know, uh, you would hear it, and then yeah. you would take that song. And it's and like you want to be the person to bring this wine to them. Like you also have a very, very talented team to work with. You know, working with John Nicholas uh, Mayo, like. 
male camaze is like that is a standard in many many places you know so how did you two develop that relationship and decide to go on and start Nicholas J? So it's, uh, you're right, I'm extremely fortunate to have a partner who is regarded pretty much everywhere as being one of the you know, top five, top ten winemakers in Burgundy. Oh, yeah. And with what's happened in Burgundy and the rarity of Burgundy and to have him be making some of the best Burgundies in the world, there's no doubt that that has shed such positive light. And, and people want to try Nicolas Jay as a, as a result of that because he's making, he's making the wines. But it's not, it's really, again, back to this whole thing about authenticity. I met Jean Nicolas in 1987 when he was going to school with my sister. I mean, you can't make that shit up, yeah, right? No. I mean, this is, this is how life works. I was there with one of, I think with Concrete Blonde or REM, I was in Philly, and uh, they were, my sister was going to Penn, and I, you know, rang her up and said, hey, I got the show tonight, do you want to come out and see it? And she said, I can't, I've got a bunch of my graduate school uh, students coming over, we're having sort of a dinner and drinking, hanging out, why don't you come by before you go to the show? So I go over there and, and, and to her house, and I'm like, so who's the French dude? And, and, and she says, you should talk to him. I don't know, his family's got something to do with wine. I don't know. You're into wine. You should go talk to him. And uh, that started what is now, God, I hate to say it, like a 35-year relationship. So I, he would stay with me in California when he would come out and do his marketing and sales stuff. And I would stay him admittedly more when, uh, in Burgundy <laughs> and uh, hang out with him and go tasting with him. So it's, it's a long, we've been drinking wine together mm. for a really long time. So and you two have a, a sense for one another's taste, trust each other's palate. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's really cool. It's like, you know, building up, uh, you like the rapper, he's like the producer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, you guys have a, you like Snoop, he's like Dre. You got, when you two get together, it's going to be something amazing. That's really cool. No, we're very fortunate. And we both bring, like any great partnership, we bring different things to the table. Of course. You know, I'm, he's very, much more reserved. Um, he's super smart. Um, but he's, you know, I'm more of a, I'm telling the story. I'm more animated. I'm, you know, I'm the guy out there going into restaurants and, you know, doing that, that whole end right. of things. Right. So, you know, at, coming from the music business as an executive in music, now being an executive in wine, what experience are you taking from your previous life to this life? A lot of it. Um, well, first of all, when you have, we now have seven people at Nicolajay, so I don't know if there's any executives involved in terms <laughs> of that. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm taking out the trash as much as I'm doing, right. any, as I'm doing anything else. Right. Uh, so I don't know about executives, but... <laughs> I think um, as you get older and you've built companies and, you know, I, IRS was an indie that started out as just two of us and we built it into a company of 70 people and, and had, you know, worldwide. And then going over to MCA Universal and working at a, at a corporate situation, you know, I sort of joined the dark side in that, in, the, in, that, in that way. But I learned a ton there too and it all is coming back here in the sense that uh, kind of knowing what matters. Um, I think that, that, you know, good people, hiring good people, um, being genuine, uh, building the right selection of your partners in the marketplace. Wine is, you're dependent upon physical distribution in yeah. states. You know, you're delegating the responsibility of people going out and telling your story and to pitching that to restaurants and so forth. Um, I think that's really important and I, I learned a lot there. Um, 
it's it's not a straightforward business. I mean, Alexander Hamilton, you know, uh, uh, Lin Manuel made a great play, but that guy really screwed up the alcohol business back in 1776 when he he did that deal with the southern states so that all of the states now control alcohol as their own fiefdom, and so now you have 50 different sets of rules, you know, different sets of rules for selling alcohol in all 50 states. And I bet very few of your listeners know or frankly even care about that. That, but yeah. it's really a big barrier in terms oh, of operating. People don't realize like why you get certain wines in certain areas. You know why the wine selection in New York might be a little better than what you'll find in Idaho. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just, right. But and that that comes to a business decision and also thinking about where you know you're going to be focusing the allocations. That's that's yes. really interesting. I mean, so we have a few wines here. A few yes. new wines here. We're going to try. Today, you pick the wines and the rhymes. So okay. um, I'm interested to, uh, to hear a little bit about why uh, you wanted to connect these. Um, so can you tell uh, everyone a little bit about the first wine that we're trying to have? So we're drinking the 2018 L'Ensemble Pinot Noir. Uh, all our wines are from the Willamette Valley. Um, as, as you know, uh, Nicolas Jay uh, makes only Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. We occasionally make a little bit of rosé, depending on the vintage. It's usually a saunier, which is where you drain a little bit of the juice when you first put it in. Um, but this L'Ensemble is a blend of eight different vineyards in the Willamette Valley. jean Nicola and I spent two years in 2011 and 12 uh, in Oregon. We visited uh, dozens and dozens of cellars and tasted fruit from over 200 different vineyards before we selected uh, the, the vineyards that we use in this wine. Uh, all the wines are organically farmed and uh, or biodynamically farmed. Uh, there's no, no chemicals, no pesticides ever uh, in a Nicolas Jay wine and they're unfined and unfiltered. And they're made very much in the Burgundian manner that Jean Nicola utilizes at his Mayo Camisee estate. Um, except for the, the big difference in this wine is we use only about 30% new oak as opposed to his Burgundian wines that are sort of 50 to 100%. We just found that by having more oak than that, the oak really dominated the wine and did not let the fruit and the subtlety of the terroir that comes out of Oregon really come through. These are all very low alcohol wines in the scheme of things. They're, our wines tend to be between 13 and 13.5%. And I mean, does that matter? Well, I think it matters when it comes to food because they're balanced wines. These right. are wines that I think as you taste that tension between the, 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 the tannins and the structure and the fruit, you don't want, uh, we don't want our wines to be one or the other dominating, right? right. And oftentimes you get some of these wines that'll be kind of like fruit bombs. And sometimes people will taste our wines and they'll go, you know, this doesn't have the same explosion in my yeah. mouth. <laughs> and it's like, well, listen, if that's the kind of, of, of wine that you like, God bless, right? I mean, it's this wine's like music, it's personal. <laughs> this ain't you know, that. Uh, right, yeah, exactly, but this is not that right. in terms of that, so. Yeah. No, this is, this is amazing, I mean. Thank you. 18 was a great vintage in the Willamette Valley, uh, 18 and 19, but 18, I think in particular for us, really uh, achieved it. It has the, the, the fruit and the complexity, and yet at the same time, you can really taste the earth and it has that, that soulfulness, soulfulness that you really, at least I look for in, 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 a, in a wine. 
I'm really happy with this. It's it's early days though. I mean, this wine will definitely be better uh, as the years go by. Right. Now, what song would you pair with this drink right here? What, what would you go with? I would put this wine um, with, I think, Family Affair by mm. Mary J. Blige. Let's get it That this wine, I think, gets part of its uh, uh, gracefulness and part of its power, and, and and a lot of what makes it fantastic from the fact that it's the sum of, of these incredible different parts. So these are literally of the eight vineyards, the best vineyards in the Willamette Valley. And when you think about the the song "Family Affair" and yeah. that pairing together of Dre and Mary. Um, and, and all the different talented people that were involved in pulling that together, um, that there's a, there's a whole story between that song and, and about uh, with Dre and Mary and them getting together. We had heard the beats. Well, and don't worry, it's a podcast. We got time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'd heard the beats. It was the last song for the record, and, and we just had all these misfires on getting Mary and Dre together. And then it finally was supposed to happen this one night in L.A., and Mary was there, and, uh, and, and, and Dre didn't show up. And Mary rightfully went nuclear you know i don't give a shit if it's dre in terms of we we go way back and and i mean you know you can't stand me up i flew out here and you know blah 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 and and it was a tough situation because she was not wrong but on the other hand i really wanted this song i mean the beats were incredible and i was like going this song is gonna make a big difference Mary and it was yeah. all I could do to keep her and getting her back in the studio with him at a later date which he did show up incidentally um, for as obviously but uh, yeah that was that was a tough moment but had an awfully fantastic result for I everybody mean, for her audience yeah. for Mary for Dre, seeing her do that song in the I, Super Bowl. I was about dude, to say, I'm like, yo. I'm and, sitting there watching that going, <laughs> that song almost didn't happen. He didn't show up for that first session. <laughs> That's nuts, man. I mean, but again, it's, it's one of those moments where it's like, why, man? You you saw the evolution. You know, you were yeah. there at the start. And to be a part of that, that, that must feel really, really awesome. I got to say, man. And was this from um, the, the new facility? In, uh, in Dundee? No, no. This is, um, so when we started out, like any good startup, um, we wanted to focus on what we were making. And so we, to try to build a winery or buy a winery and then operate a winery, I'm talking about the physical plant, is really, A, it takes a lot of cash, and B, it takes a lot of time and a lot of focus. And so Jean Nickel and I decided that we were going to use other people's wineries, almost like a co-op kind of situation we uh, Adelsheim is one of the top one of the earliest and one of the top wineries in the valley and David Adelsheim very graciously offered to let us make wine at his place 
at the beginning. So in 14, 15, 16, we made wines there. And in 17, 18, 19, we made wines at Sokol Blosser. And then we wanted to make sure that we could make great wine. We wanted to make sure it would sell. And we wanted to put all of our energy into doing those two things, mm -hmm. making the wine great and then selling it. And then, you know, we can worry about having our own winery later. So in 19, we bought this 52-acre piece of property on the north side of the Dundee Hills. And I say north side because it's most all of the early wineries in Oregon uh, in the Willamette Valley were on the south side of the Dundee Hills because the concern was getting grapes ripe. And the south side is significantly warmer than the north side. So no surprise, we bought a big piece of land with fantastic growing, but it's on the north side because it's cooler. Because right. I don't know about you, but I don't think it's going to be getting any cooler <laughs> in terms of you know moving, moving forward. So we planted that vineyard, or four acres of it so far, uh, only in the last year or two. And we're going to eventually build out, we'll have 20 acres planted there. But it'll be a good 10 years, if not 15 years, before we're really using these those wines. The, the, the vineyards that are in L'Ensemble that we're drinking right now, the oldest one is from 1971, the Highland Vineyard. So those grapes are 50 over 50 years old. And then most of them are from the 80s. Our own Bishop Creek is, makes up a bunch of that, which is in the Yamhill Carlton AVA. And that winery, uh, that vineyard was planted in 87. Temperance Hill was planted in the 90s. Um, the Nisa vineyard was planted in 1990. So you're dealing with very much old vines. And right. Jean Nicola believes that, that vineyards don't really begin to sort of tell you who they are until they're at least 10 years old. Um, not to say, I mean, they do have an endpoint too. I mean, 80-year-old vines are very tough and they start to go the other way. I mean, yeah. just like a bottle of wine can have a, a, a rise and a peak and it also can have a valley oh, yeah. uh, too, <laughs> um, as we were talking about earlier. But vineyards are the same thing. I mean, the sweet spot is probably 12 years to 35 or 40 is probably where the production, because as that vineyard gets older, they start producing less. The, the, the ability for the root system to provide the, 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 um, the nutrients uh, to the rest of the body. It's going up through an, a much older developed trunk. And just like, just like people do, right. the, the, the machinery does not work as well yeah. in, the, in that vineyard when you're, when you're 50 years time. old. Yeah. Right, yeah, there's a little wear and tear going on. You know. Not that you would know about yeah. that being so young. But. Listen, man, I just came from the chiropractor like two days ago just yeah. because all of those shows messed me up. It was, oh, my gosh, like full body workout. And then, um, so, yeah, I did a show Wednesday, flew back from Chicago Thursday, then did a show on Saturday. Right. And Sunday, my son was over. And I never want to be that dad that's too busy or too tired, so... I stumbled myself to go play basketball with him and there really, really ruined my Monday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There <laughs> so, you go. So my the Tuesday, knees, I was the at the chiropractor. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was just I needed to get a realignment after that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but this is this is dope because Oregon Pinot is legendary, right? Like everyone knows uh, Pinot's great in Oregon. You know, there's also great Pinot Noir in Burgundy. And working with John Nicholas, you know, I would assume he's bringing that intelligence and winemaking style from Burgundy and able to produce amazing Pinot in Oregon. 
you know, so how much of that winemaking style and energy from Burgundy have you seen come through in the vineyards at uh, Jay Nicholas? He is, um, Jean Nicola intended to bring the same winemaking uh, techniques, his tool bag, if you will, uh, to Oregon and see how it went. As he said, this is how I was taught to make wine. Um, he, he was taught by a very famous Burgundian winemaker named Henri Jaillet. Who was a, a legend guy, um, and he's the guy that was making the wines at Mayo Camazet before Jean Nicola came back and took over the family business. So Jean Nicola's father sort of abdicated his role as being winemaker. He was involved in politics, believe it or not, and so he hired had the good sense to hire Henri Jaillet, and then Jean Nicola came back and 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 taught learned under him and then took over you know he's been making the wines there for years so he certainly wanted to bring that tool bag to oregon but he was open to adjusting it and i think as i mentioned earlier uh, we use less oak but for the most part he makes the wines the same way uh, he and tracy uh, our assistant winemaker that jean nicola makes them in burgundy there's very little difference um, what happens though uh, there are some things that are different for instance malolactic uh, fermentation tends to kick in earlier in Oregon than it does in France um, it, for, for reasons that are not completely clear. It probably has to do with the cellars, the, you know, the cellars in, in, in France are cooler and underground and so forth, where in Oregon they're not. Um, there's, it's definitely a different place. Yeah, People totally. will say, oh, so Jean Nicolas making Burgundy in yeah. Oregon. It's like, no. Nah, you gotta get completely different nah. fruit. <laughs> you know, it's a whole different vibe. It's yeah. the same uh, latitude. If you take, you know, you go around the earth on the, on the latitude, you come across from Burgundy, you end up right in the Dundee in, in, in the Willamette Valley. So you do have that same sort of geographical standpoint. The soils are different. And, 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 and the climate is a little bit different. Right. We get similar amounts of rain, but the rain in Oregon tends to all come between October and April, where in Burgundy, you were just there, as, mm -hmm. you, knew, as you know, the yeah. rain is spread around the 12 months. So they yeah. get rain in July and rain in August and so forth, and we rarely, if ever, get that kind of rain. You know what this is like? So I got a, I got a wine pairing for this, and I'll play the song um, after we're done. But, you know, this is, I'm, I always love to come up with my pairings, uh, you know, while we're talking. And as I'm experiencing this and as I'm thinking about it, um, you have times when like, a, a, I, I like to, one of the connect, we talked about the authenticity connection. Another big connection between wine and hip hop is terroir, right? You might have an artist uh, that comes out of the West Coast that sounds, has a West Coast style. The things that he talks about will be different because the socioeconomical conditions sure. are different. Now, an artist that was uh, from New York, he might sound different. It's the same thing for producers. So when I think a New York producer, a quintessential New York producer I think of is DJ Premier. Sure. You know, like Primo, that's New York, that's that boom bap. However, um, a New York producer doesn't have to only work with New York rappers. You know, so what happens when they step out? There was a song called Let Em Know by Bun B, um, and which was produced by DJ Premier. Goddamn, Primo. Long time coming, baby. History in the making. It's going down. Talk to him, Primo. Say, like this young pimp C, I'm fucking with Primo. It's, 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 it's going down, baby. Won't make us loud in my production is tight. 
Southern artist, and it, I mean, it's one of my favorite joints. But this is the let them know of, okay. <laughs> of right, you know. So it's great. It, it's that's that's how that comes together. But it's exactly what you're saying because <laughs> yeah, you're, there are going to be elements that are similar, but you're going to get something completely different. And I think that's what's really special about this. Which is, I mean, you know that this is made by an old world winemaker, right? right. If you put this next to most new world wines people will not pick it out as being new world i Definitely. mean maybe some will but for the most part they do not and and i think you have that that sense of place um in terms of the winemaking, but uh, it, it definitely is not burgundy. Yeah, nor, exactly. nor does it nor does it intend to be. No, this this is amazing, man. I, I truly blown away. I gotta say. Well, thank you. you no, know, that that is that is really good, man. And we started out with this. I mean, when John Nicolai did this, he said to me um, when I asked him if he wanted to do this, and I gave him the whole vision of in you know, Oregon and why and so forth. And he'd been to Oregon and, and and was familiar with the wines and thought it had great potential. But he said to me, you know. My answer is maybe. And I go, maybe? <laughs> My friend, this is your response to me? I'm coming to you? Come on. I mean, I'm bringing something to the party, too. He says, no, 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 no. He said, the reason why the answer is maybe is because we have to make sure that we can access the fruit, the grapes, and, and, and be able to make a world-class wine. I'm making Mayo Camise at this level. I can't make a grocery store wine in, in, in Oregon. We have to make. And I know you. And unless you're trying to make the best wine in Oregon, you're not going to be happy. <laughs> and so the reality is we may or may not make the best wine in Oregon. That will not be for us to decide. But we have to go into it knowing that everything we're doing is to try to make the best wine in Oregon. And I said, all right, fair enough. Fair enough. That's got to be the way we, and that is how we go at it. I mean, Love every it. day we're trying to think of things that we can do better. Well, you know, no disrespect to any other winemakers out there. How do you feel, do you feel like you're producing the best wine in Oregon right now? I think we're making uh, wine at the top level in Oregon. I think there are certainly other producers that I would consider to be uh, absolutely at the same level. Um, I think there still is much room for us to grow. Mm -hmm. There are things, I'm, I'm happy with the wine that we're yeah. making. In fact, I'm thrilled. And the feedback that we get, you know, whether it's in the press or more importantly from, you know, people like yourself and, and, and customers and, yeah. you know, the people that, that really care about wine, the feedback we get is terrific. So I'm happy with that. And I think Jean Nicola is, but we have this whole vine to vat program that we've mm -hmm. come up with. It's just me coming up with a silly name, but it's basically how do you get those grapes when we decide it's time to pick and which that picking decision is ultra crucial. Yeah. And I'm out there Tracy and I are out there getting samples, and we're measuring every two days as we're trying to get down to that picking. But once you say, okay, I'm going to pick, and you've tasted that grape, how do you get those grapes off that vine in that vineyard that might be 10 miles from our, 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 our winery? How do you get those grapes off, cut off into a bin, onto a truck, to our vineyard, sorted through and into the vat, 
and get them in there in the same condition that they were on when they were hanging there. Yeah. And that may sound like a really simple concept, but it's not. Yeah. And you see how all the challenges of them getting, you know, bruised. It's like a tomato, exactly. right? Or like a banana or anything else. I yeah. mean, this fruit, you do not, you have to treat it like every grape is special. And so when I think about that whole process and I think about the improvements that we've made in that process, it's been great, but at the same time, we still got a ways to go. Yeah. No, I mean, this is definitely among the best that I've had uh, from Oregon. And the thing is, because I'm a Pinot Noir dude, you know, so I drink Pinot from where it is produced well, <laughs> you know, so I, I, this is definitely among some of the best that I've had. Well, I think Oregon is making some of the best Pinots um, in the world, I mean, totally. without question, and Definitely. you know, there's a really, really well-known, famous uh, French Burgundian family, the Duran family, yeah. and you know, Domaine Duran and Veronique Duran makes the wines at their Oregon. They were one of the pioneers. They were there in the '80s, um, really sensing. Her father sensed that Oregon had the potential. And she said something, uh, I was with her in Oregon, and she said something, she says, who knows, you know, there is a Latash in Oregon. Yeah. We just don't know what it yeah. is yet. Right. But, but, but the fact is, is she said, I fully expect that, that maybe not in our lifetime, but there will be a vineyard in Oregon that, wow. d that creates that same level of respect that Latash does yeah, now coming out of Burgundy. I, I, and, and that's pretty heady stuff to come from. From, from a woman uh, with her stature as a, as a winemaker. <laughs> Absolutely. And so now we're going to try the Chardonnay. So this is the 2020 Chardonnay. Right. This is um, our affinité, is what we call it, uh, Chardonnay. And uh, it's a, it, it too, is a blend. It's a blend from uh, grapes from our own Bishop Creek vineyard that were older grapes planted uh, in 1998. And then from, in this particular case, from three other vineyards in uh, Oregon, the Marsh Vineyard, Langelo Vineyard, and <coughs> the Van Osen uh, Vineyard. And we're trying to replicate what we did with the Pinot Noir by sourcing like the best fruit from different vineyards. We've also planted more Chardonnay at Bishop Creek, and we're of course planting Chardonnay at the new estate, but that won't come online for some time. Yeah, so. Some time. We didn't start making Chardonnay until 2018. So we started with the Pinot in 14, and our first vintage of Chardonnay was in 18. And we made a whopping 200 cases. So that, I mean, this 2020, we made 500 cases. Okay. So it's still, talk <laughs> what, about what rare. What is the, um, the overall production? Uh, we're getting between four and 5,000. Um, we're hoping to grow hopefully up to you know five six thousand in the next couple of years and maybe we can get the winery could handle probably as much as seven thousand cases but these are you know microscopic quantities it's compared to others. this doesn't even taste like a 2020 like honestly it tastes wow this is i gotta say man i'm blown away jayqua sees me do this when i raise my eyebrows he knows <laughs> this is really good man this is totally my style of wine you know this this is when people ask, it's tough to say, like, what wine do you like, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, often I tell people, like, you know, I like French Chardonnay because it's an easy thing to grasp, easy to understand, and that the winemaking style is a bit different. You know, the body's totally different. And here I'm getting everything that I love 
in Chardonnay. This is really, really, I gotta say, man, you're doing the right thing. So I gotta ask you this, like, there was a time that uh, I made playlists from time to time and I curate playlists for restaurants. One time there was a new restaurant, shout out to my man, Dustin Wilson, um, uh, One White Street, when he opened oh, his restaurant, yeah. I did the music program for the start and I had to make uh, 72 hours of music, which was gonna, you know, go throughout the week. It's a lot, you know, and when you're doing a playlist for a restaurant, you can't throw back that ass up at 5 p.m. Right, right, <laughs> you know, right. you gotta understand what part of the night to play certain records. And I'm making several playlists. So it took me about a month to make that 72 hour playlist. And I broke it up into four different playlists. But by the end of it, and like you, I listen to music all day, every day, 24 hours. I'm like a music fiend. And uh, after I made that 72-hour playlist, I couldn't listen to music for like a month. It, might, it took me about a month to make it, but I just wasn't listening to music because it felt like uh, when, when a mom tells their kid they find me smoking cigarettes, and like, now you got to smoke the whole pack in front of me. Right, right. <laughs> right. Sometimes <laughs> you can have too much birthday. You yeah, know? Exactly, right. <laughs> you have too much birthday. <laughs> so, uh, but it's some. I love music though. That was my, you know. So now coming from music, being, uh, you know, the job, and then wine being a passion. But now, you know, your passion is your job, and that is a difficult thing to balance and a difficult thing to experience. Now that this is the part of your career that you're in, how does that feel for you? It feels, it actually feels good. Um, I never burnt out on music. Mm. Um, even when I was in the music business, I burned out on the business. I mean, you do deal with assholes and people lying and, and, and people trying the to, phony you know, shit kills me. yeah, I mean, you know, that I don't miss the business at all. Mm. I, to this day, I mean, I've been out of the creative aspect of this for, you know, 10, 15 years. I miss being in the studio or you know, listening to that song and, or, or going into a club or you know, hearing someone play a set of demos and that whole sense of discovery and working with the art. I miss yeah. that. I miss that every day. I hear, I was listening, what was I, I heard this, um, what's her name? Never mind. I'll have, to, I'll, have to, I'll have to come back to it. There was an artist that I heard just uh, heard on the and I just flipped out and I was sitting there thinking, going, you know, I would sign that. Yeah. It, it was this it was her first single. I heard it on this little independent radio station. It wasn't it was out on a local deal or whatever. But I mean, that's the part of the music business that I just loved was that sense of discovery, working with young artists that the, the world is their oyster, everything's potential. But I never burnt out on that. Mm. The thing with wine is that I'm, even though now I'm, yeah, 20, and I talk to my partner, Lynn, she'll tell you that all I do is talk about wine and think about wine. Every restaurant I go into, I'm looking at the wine list, <laughs> talking to the sommelier. It's like, well, does it ever stop? Um, and, you know, the answer is no, it doesn't. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, you're always thinking about, you yeah. know, what's going on and stuff. But the point is, I don't burn out because I love it. The fact that it is my passion, yeah. you could line up 10 different wines and all I would, would be hoping for is that I'd never had them before. Because <laughs> if I'd never had them before, I'd be learning. I'd right. be experiencing something different. And you would say, oh, have you not had... In fact, you had a guest on that had these wines from Mallorca. Yeah. Right? 
I never had a wine from. I, mean, I was sitting there listening to that, going, <laughs> I never had a wine from. I mean, I've had wines, been drinking wine for forty years from all these different places. But mm-hmm. I think that that constant sense of discovery and learning and being excited to yeah. learn more about wine or taste something that's different. You don't have to like everything. I mean, there's plenty of wines that people turn me on to. You go, yeah, yeah all right, fantastic. Yeah. I'm glad I had it. Not for me. I'm not. I'm not going back to that one, right? Mm -hmm. Not when there's two million different wines out there, uh, in terms of that. But I think if you have passion for what you do, um, you know, you're lucky. Yeah. No, it's very true. Uh, Now, working in this, do you see in in the business side of it? Have you seen any similarities to the music and the wine business? I think there's a lot of similarities uh, in terms of the creative process of making wine and making music. And there's a guy that actually brought that subject up to me and, want, and did a whole article on it in an English publication when I was over in England a few years ago. And the, what I mean by the similarities is that when you're making a record, there's all these sort of junction points where you have to make decisions. Like it, everything from the mics that you're using on the drum kit or the, 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 the sample, the sampler that you're using in terms of the studio you're making it in, um, the, the musicians that you hire, uh, the, the, the way that it's going to be mixed in terms of how you're creating the spatial re- uh, differences and, and, and creating that, that place in the mix for each element of the yeah. music to come through and how that evolves through the arc of the song. There's all these different places, and every one of those decisions really impacts yeah. the final product, right? Yeah. Making wine, that we were talking earlier about a pick decision, about yeah. when you, I think that's the most important. That's like the song, yeah. if you will. Like I, I still believe in terms of making records that if you don't have a great song, it's really difficult to have something good in the end. I mean, the song is the essential element of it. So that's the equivalent to the picking decision, right? If you've picked the grape and it's not good fruit, if it's it's not ripe enough, or even worse, if it's too ripe, then it's really hard to turn chicken shit into chicken salad, man. It's, 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 it's It's really hard to deal with that. And the same thing with the song. But once you've picked it, then you have the decisions about are you doing whole cluster uh, fermentation or are you going to distem everything? Uh, what's the temperature that you're going to keep the tanks? Are you a person that adds a bunch of crap when you're making wine, which we do not. We're a non-interventionist. We don't do any manipulation of the wine. But you have all those decisions and then you know all the way down to the corks that you put in or the... The, uh, everything about it and yeah. all of those decisions that a winemaker uh, winemakers make through that process impacts the final thing so I think that is really parallel yeah. and the other thing that's parallel not to the music business today so much but what the music business that I started in is um, physical distribution because you have all these distributors all around the world that have sales teams they get up in the morning and put on their shoes just like we do, but I have one wine that I care about. They represent a portfolio of 200 wineries or whatever it is. So how do I get that salesperson that's getting up that morning and deciding what they're going to do in Miami? You know, what wines are they going to pitch? You know, like used to be with radio station promo guys, you would 
when you walk into a radio station, you can't play them all 10 songs that yeah. you got in your bag, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to play them two of them, maybe, right, if you get that much time. So right. you have to decide which are the two that are most likely for that guy or girl to program for the radio station. And it's like that when you walk into a restaurant, mm -hmm. how many wines can you taste a psalm on? Yeah. And so, I mean, there's a, a certain amount, yeah. right? At a certain Absolutely. point, they're not going to pay attention if you're going to try to taste them on 14 different wines. So how do you, as a, as, a, as a winemaker, as a winery, how do you get people excited that are sort of throughout the food chain mm -hmm. to get them excited for them to be your advocate, for them to tell your story in a way that even approaches the kind of energy that you would get if yeah. I was telling the story exactly. or if Jean no Nicola was telling the story. No one can sell it the, the way that you can. Right, yeah. right, exactly. No, that that is true. And that I, I um, as we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, uh, rappers interviewing people in the wine business and the similarities and distribution, marketing, and all sorts of things, and, and how they all tie together. So I can totally see, um, you know, the skills that you obtained in the music industry really playing through in wine, because everything you mentioned, like, I mean, I'm glad, you know, the audience is getting ahead of this, because this is a true learning lesson. People don't understand what it really takes to sell wine. You know, even from the distribution side, the distributor then they make the sale but then the per the bartender or you know the psalm or the person in that wine retail shop now has to be as excited maintain that same excitement that the winemaker had that the distributor had that they have to have that when they are um, explaining that and offering it to the end client and it's not the easiest thing to do, but I feel like you've been able to do that a few times with some records we heard. <laughs> so I think you guys are going to be do really well, and I can see this becoming that legendary, iconic wine out of Oregon that um, that we we've had from all the Burgundies as well. So well, I hope so. I appreciate that very much. See that, man. We're we're certainly putting our heart and soul into it. I mean, we're not playing. That's I what mean, it's about. We're in it. And that shines through. You can you can taste that, yeah. you know, and, and that definitely shines through, man. So this this has been so cool. Um, Thank you. I appreciate. It's just so great your your uh, your passion for what you're doing and your knowledge of wine, and and the fact that you are, are so curious yeah. about it all. It, it really is just it's it's lovely to talk to you and it's just it's it's exciting for me so it's a pleasure yeah. to be here you and know what I, I, honestly I, I feel like there's so many similarities between us like the way that you're described i'm i always compare wine to music so the way that you were explaining a lot of this the wine parts to me i'm just like yo this is the exact same way that i talk but many people don't get to really see those similarities you yeah. know and then even the sense of discovery in wine is so so important and i'm glad you mentioned that because yeah you know people ask what's our favorite wine all the time i maybe have a favorite wine style or a style that mm -hmm. i lean towards but a big part of the incitement is tasting things that i've never heard of or don't exactly. know or you know i remember when i learned about wines from georgia 
you know, the fact that Georgia is the first wine producing country, like who would think? Who knew? I, yo, I didn't even know that there was a country named Georgia. Right, exactly. <laughs> Thought know? we were talking Atlanta. What you mean? <laughs> Atlanta's making wine now? <laughs> yeah, no, it ain't that Georgia, my friend. So, <laughs> it's almost <laughs> Russia. At least it used to be part of the Soviet <laughs> Union. But I mean, I didn't know that. I agree with you. Who knew? Yeah. But yeah, man. That There's is... wine made everywhere, man. I mean, it's almost no matter where you go, people are making wine. Some of it ain't so good. But but the point is, is it's that made. wine is everywhere. Wine is food. Exactly. I mean, wine yeah. is food. It's universal. It, talk, it talks about the culture. I say all the time, it's lightning in a bottle. Yeah. You know, it's, as you mentioned, that day that the grape is picked. <laughs> you know, it's the weather that day. It's the soil. It's... You know, there could have been a dock strike that the year that the wines were actually being exported, and now right. all the wines from that vintage are fucked up. So now you get a little bit like let's let's think about recently with tariffs. Yeah. Right. How many people were not able to get their wine? So That's right. wine tells a story about um, what's going on in, in the, the world. world. Yeah, so exactly. This is really cool. Jay, man, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Cheers. Pleasure. This was a moment in wine and hip hop. Brought to you by Crew Love.